Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm here with my new friend, as in we met three and a half minutes ago. I think so, yes. Kate Fowler, who is involved with Animal Aid. That's right. Tell us all about Animal Aid and what you do there, Kate. Okay. <laughs> Animal Aid's you been going... <laughs> You're starting for 10. <laughs> I'm just sitting comfortably. Um, Animal Aid's been going since 1977. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started as a, a kitchen worktop organisation. Uh, one lady... Jean Hang on, sorry. Pink. Kitchen worktop organisation. That's Is it. That, I don't know that expression. That's a fantastic expression. <laughs> no offices, no uh, secretariat. Just one woman who was angry about the treatment of animals, particularly in laboratories. And she thought, if only I can tell people what I know, I can stop this. Right. A very clear, naive goal. Um, (laughs) So she thought, in a sense, it's the truth will make you free. Exactly. She felt just by saying to people, telling people what she knew, because it had such a profound effect on her, Mm. that they would see it too, and that people would rise up and it would would all change. Mm. And of course, you know, 30-something years on, we're still battling vivisection and numbers go up and down in labs, arguments backwards and forwards. And um, we haven't won the argument yet, but I think we're winning the argument in terms of more and more scientists are now feeling empowered to start speaking up about how they feel about animal experimentation. Mm. And certainly Mm. when most scientists now present uh, their results of using animals, they counter it with, of course, we don't know if this will work in people, which is essentially what we're saying, that every time you're testing a person for the first time, it's like testing it for the first time because you don't know what the differences are going to be. Mm, mm, mm. I'm thinking that my first apprehension of these issues would have been in the 80s, and it was about women and makeup Mm. rather than vivisection for scientific experiment. It was quite a big thing over makeup, or maybe it still is. Well, it still is, but I think because people see makeup as frivolous, Mm, that you can do with animal testing for that. But obviously the argument runs parallel that if you can make makeup safe Mm. without using animals, Mm. then surely Mm. it's not a massive step towards making uh, other products safe, um, and particularly drug development safe. So, yeah, she had a big ambition, Mm. and uh, Mm. that's how she started. And it was based in Tunbridge, that's where she lived. This is where we are. We're in Tunbridge in Kent in a place called the Old Chapel. The Old Chapel. It's rather nice. It's just opposite the job centre, (laughs) which isn't so attractive. No, on a a warm day, you can uh, see the odd fight break out in the car park from the job centre. So it keeps Mm. uh, keeps us entertained. I guess that's the desperation and desolation of disemployment right? expressing itself. Yeah, it's and a, masculinity, no doubt. Not always masculinity. Oh, really? <laughs> Bit of femininity. Bit of femininity. I'm afraid so. All life is here. It's a working class town with all of those problems in difficult economic times. And right. the job centre is obviously, as you say, right opposite our office. So, yes, yeah. we, we really do feel like we're very much involved with real people. We're not tucked away in a Westminster office. And this is Kent, which many of us would think of as a middle-class Tory greensward stronghold. Mm-hmm. But there is real poverty in a place like Tunbridge. There is, yeah, yeah there yeah. is, and I think you don't have to dig too deep, too deep to find that. Mm. Um, so yes, we we say we feel very kind of comfortable here. We're mm. um, we're not far from London, so when we need to go and meet up with decision makers and yeah. politicians, yeah. we just hop on the train, doing the, re- on the train, doing the reverse journey no, that you've just done. just done. So there she is, 38 years ago, this lady. Mm-hmm. Her name? Jean Pink. Jean Pink. Mm, lovely name. A wonderful name. She's sitting not too far from here in this town, thinking what is being done to animals is horrendous in the name of scientific advancement. Mm. 
And I can see that and I know that. And once I explain that to everybody else, it will change. So what happens next? What happens in 1978, 80? She produced leaflets. She went on marches. She uh, engaged with other people doing similar things. And actually, you're right. The 80s and possibly into the early 90s, this was a really big issue. So for World Day for Animals and Laboratories, which falls um, around April every year, um, they would get tens of thousands of people marching in London on this very issue which was quite something. Um, and I suspect the days of marching are over, realistically. Uh, it's rather an outdated mode of expression when everyone's glued to their computers. Um, but it was powerful. Uh, and I think the passion remains, but perhaps the disillusionment with what people can achieve uh, has changed. And over the years, Animal Aid has obviously grown. We take on a lot more subjects, not mm. just animal experimentation. We work quite differently now. Um, we work very much with the public, with grassroots, with talking to people, because people can change their lives. We don't have to wait for politicians. Obviously, we're trying to push politicians too, but it's a very much a dual edge. Mm. Don't wait for politicians to say, this is no good. You can opt out now. Uh, so we work very much with uh, the general public, but we're also engaging much more politically. Mm -hmm. What about talking to, thinking about vivisection, GlaxoSmithKline, Welcome, or whatever their mm. current configuration is? <laughs> They're like the big auditing and accountancy firms, these drug companies, yes. aren't they? They're forever expanding and then contracting. I suspect there might just be one, actually. Only. There's only, only <laughs> one deep down. Well, it's like that there are only about three companies that make toothpaste, but mm. there are apparently hundreds of brands out exactly. there. Exactly, yes. So, do you talk to them? We don't speak directly to them. Oh, here's your tea. Oh, hello. Thank you very much, no, sir. Greatly appreciated. Cheers. Led Zeppelin t-shirt. It is, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I once had a date with a woman who, at the date, blind date, produced a photograph of herself with Robert Plant. <laughs> and that was at that. I felt like, neither of us felt I could really compete. <laughs> well done, Barbara Shouting. <laughs> I've got a story about romantic projection for almost any occasion. Oh, have you? And they're all true. That one was true. Anyhow. Anyhow. So, uh, we, do you, so you don't really talk to the companies themselves that are the, f the end point of a lot of these clinical trials and so on. What about, I guess it's to universities some, to some that are doing a lot we of do. this stuff. To some extent, we have, we're a small organisation yeah, and we say sure. work on lots of issues. So yeah. we have to try and pitch where we think we can have most effect. Yeah. Our supporters donate kindly and generously so that we can have the most bang for buck. Horrible yeah. expression, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we try and strategic yeah. you know we're yeah. not really in the same league as uh, the glaxos i mean some governments aren't in the same league as smith glaxo they're huge <laughs> and powerful so um what we try and do is particularly with vivisection is difficult mm. because it's funded in a way that most people can't have input into mm. it's done behind closed doors yeah. they can't see it they can't find out about it mm. um mm. and there's a lot of secrecy around it so what we look at are medical research charities uh -huh. Because people do give their money to those. And by letting people know which charities do fund animal tests and which don't, that's a direct way people can make a difference. Mm. It's mm. one of the few ways people can plug in and mm. make a real difference. Mm. So we have a campaign called Victims of Charity. Victims of Charity? Yeah. Wow. And there's a little microsite there. And if you go on there, you can see... Uh, what experiments have been done and funded by the big organisations, British mm. Heart Foundation, Cancer Research UK, who do great work in other respects. We have no mm. you know, qualms mm. with a lot of their work. Um, and they can decide whether to withhold funding from that and also contact the chief executive mm. and say, I would love to support you, but I can't while you're funding animal tests. What about 
the government funding universities directly and indirectly to do mm. research. Yeah, that is something we're, we are looking at at this stage. Um, again, that's all taxpayers' money. And we have found um, from polls, uh, YouGov polls, that if people know their money is going to animal experimentation, it's about 80% don't want it. And yet they still give to these charities because they don't make the connection. Mm. So a lot of it is awareness raising, mm. just saying you have a choice. There are, these are really great charities. These don't fund tests. You can, you can give to those. I mean, you can give to whoever you like, but you know, it's your choice. But at least give people that information to make their choice. That's great. That's great. And uh, we'll get back to a lot of these other issues, I'm sure, during the course of the conversation. But uh, I have only just moved back to Britain after 30 years elsewhere. And during my 20 years in the U.S., I actually lived on a street where there was primate experimentation. Mm. And there were lots of protests and people involved with the Animal Liberation Front and others engaged in what some call direct action, others call terrorism, mm -hmm. against the, I think this was psychologists who right. were engaging their sadistic research practices mm. by mistreating these primates. What's your view, or what's the, the organization's view, I should ask, really, on such questions, on the issue of, you know, trying to free animals from laboratories, mm. trying to destroy laboratories, that sort of thing. Well, we certainly understand the frustration and the anger that leads mm. people to that. Mm. But, of course, we're a legal organisation and we can't ever condone that. Mm. Um, but I think particularly looking at primates, it's a very emotive thing. Uh, mm. I think in very recent times we've had at least one, and I suspect more, I think there was news last week, of primates being given human or person status. Yeah, so things really are changing. Human rights mm. uh, status in some of these cases in the US that are going through different courts. Mm. It's very interesting. Yes, very interesting. Yeah. I think Stephen yeah. Wise uh, has been doing some mm. great work in the US. But I think there's one uh, particular orangutan, Sandra, I believe, in yeah. South America, who was the first one. The first one. And yeah. that's just very recent. So you can understand... I mean, there's a real arrogance about people that we are this particular species that's so fantastic and all the others are beneath us. Mm. And all the differences we set up for ourselves that make us superior mm. actually don't really exist. I mean, it used to be that we're the only ones with language. Well, mm. you know, that's obviously patently not true. Mm. Uh, I think at one stage we argued that we, well, we, we, we manipulate tools. But now we know crows do that. But yeah. lots of animals do Otters. that. Yes. Yeah. So um, we, we're setting up these arbitrary... Decisions, distinctions, distinctions between us and, them. and they're, yeah. they're falling down. So we can understand, particularly with primates, and actually possibly particularly with psychological experiments, why people are so angry and upset. Mm. Mm. I mean, I don't even understand how that works. Yeah. I mean, human yeah. psychology is a very particular thing. Mm. I don't think mm. testing on primates or any animal can ever replicate mm. what you're going to find in the weirdness of a human brain. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, no, we, we. We understand the upset and the anguish, I think, is, is, the, uh, is the bottom line, but we, obviously we, we couldn't take that route ourselves. Right. So yours is an advocacy role where you're trying to illuminate things to the public so mm -hmm. that the public itself can be empowered to make good decisions, as it were. Yeah, and at the same time, pressurising decision makers. We, yeah. have, we, set, we work with different MPs, we uh, support early day motions, we uh, go Can to... Can you explain regular. what early day motion is? Yeah, it's a, it's a non-binding kind of pledge, if you like, that MPs can sign, <clears throat> and it uh, just sets up 
it can be on any issue. They sign mm. them for all kinds of things or, or they choose not to sign at all. Um, and it just flushes out MPs to show what they support and what they don't. So uh, I did one recently on uh, CCTV in slaughterhouses. Mm. And um, over the three, because we tabled it, we, or an MP on our behalf tabled it three times, we had more than 170 MPs support that. So that just shows a level of support cross-party mm. and it's brought us closer to lots of individual MPs that we can then work with to get changes made. I wanted to ask you a general cultural question about Britain, because it's often claimed that this is a country of animal lovers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Discuss. Discuss. (laughs) Right. I wish people could have seen the look on your face. Um, I hear that a lot, and it's a, a nation of... Lots of people who love some animals. We, again, set up distinctions. If you did to a dog what we do every single day to pigs, you would be in court and you'd probably be in jail. But even though pigs and dogs are actually very similar in lots of ways, um, in terms of uh, you know, mental capacity, in terms of even size, in terms of you know, their uh, ability to interact with humans and to learn uh, different things that humans like to teach them, um, we do very different things. And so I'm often surprised by the people who get very angry when they read about a deliberate act of cruelty to a dog or a cat, but then they go home and eat bacon sandwiches. And there's a real disconnect, and it's a, it is a cultural thing. Um, and you sort of point it out, and they, they kind of grasp at things. Well, that's different, and they, it's hard to find out exactly why it's different, except for it's always been that way. Mm. And that doesn't seem mm. to me to be a good enough reason to do something. So... In terms of the profile of animal aid supporters and workers, to the extent that you feel comfortable making this public to the gigantic audience <laughs> of the podcast, what percentage do you think would, for similar reasons to those you've just enunciated, be vegetarian or vegan? Everybody who works here is vegan. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of our supporter base, um, we haven't done a survey for some time, but I think around a third of our supporters still eat meat. Now we work on lots of different issues, um, horse racing, sports shooting, vivisection as well. So it's not a requirement. We don't go to people's houses when they <laughs> sign up and go through their fridge. This is, this is, like, <laughs> this is like the TV licence cops. Yeah. We got a letter from them yesterday saying, officers have been authorised to enter your premises. <gasps> Goodness me. Are you terrified? If I had a television, I might. <laughs> but anyway... Mm. So, but, so it's 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 not a requirement. When not you sign at all. Pledge, not at all. It's not. Yeah. There's no pledge. Uh, people can join and support freely, and yeah. it's up to them. They will know that we will be encouraging them to choose a meat-free diet mm. because mm. we really do believe that is mm. the very best way to prevent suffering. The, the amount mm. of suffering in animal farming, in animal transportation, the things that routinely happen on farms. What they call, uh, you know, the, uh, the the ear tagging, the teeth clipping, the nail, the, um, the tail cutting, mm. all of that stuff. The cages that still exist. Um, it's, it's absolutely, and the scale of it. There's a billion animals killed in this country alone every year. A billion. A billion. So, in terms of scale and suffering, animal farming, animal slaughter is by far and away the biggest uh, contributor, we think, to, uh, to suffering. Um, and that's a very simple thing people can change just by picking up a different packet in the supermarket. Absolutely. Absolutely. Gosh. So, let's go back in history now, if we could. Uh, because it's, I like the, the idea of these 
interactions being conversational because they're not just teleological and following a path mm. in, an, in an obvious way. Let's go back to some of the history. You mentioned that you felt as though by the 90s, perhaps, in many ways, the big march model had mm. ended. Mm. Can you talk a bit more about that and about what Animal Aid did at that point? Well, I wasn't with Animal Aid in the 90s. I was uh, a student out there sabotaging hunts, actually. That's what I did a lot of. Um, so you, you have a degree in hunt sabotage. <laughs> where you, did you wear the little red jacket, the white breeches, and then set the foxes free? No, I went out there. I, I've always believed in, um, in putting your money where your mouth is. Mm. And it was an interesting introduction, actually, to, uh, to animal rights and animal protection. Um, mm. I was studying English literature and philosophy, so... Uh, I kind of, I don't know what happened there, I just... Peter Singer. Peter Singer happened, uh, I met some very interesting and empowered people who yeah. really said, look, they, they're killing wildlife on our doorsteps, and if we don't go out uh, and do something, there's there's no chance for that animal. And it's not just foxes, uh, where I was studying, they, was, they were killing hares and deer as well. Where was this? Uh, New Forest, I was actually at Southampton, so they had two... Uh, three hunts uh, in the new forest and each so they'd kill fox deer and hare and they'd each go out twice a week so you could make hunt sabbing a, a full-time job that is astonishing and so your sort of political awareness of all of this and interest in this that arose in part from your studies or oh it, i don't know i think it was a genetic something in me um i was i think i organized my first uh fundraiser when I was seven or eight that was a save the seals or save the whales these were big issues at the time so I remember I think forcing my friends onto bicycles that were sponsored bike ride to raise money um I organized my first demonstration at school by 10 um the food was terrible it's nothing to do with animals but (laughs) (laughs) school lunches suck atrocious the school lunches suck even my mum backed me so that was great um so I think it was in me to always stand up for the underdog I remember seeing um terrible scenes on television as a child um South Africa was a really big melting pot when I was growing up I remember seeing um I can't even believe they showed it, but the, the memory is very clear mm, of um, mm. a burning tyre being thrown onto a man in a football stadium and you know, the absolute horrors that that, that uh, man endured. Um, and things like that stayed with me. So I always felt I would work for the underdog, whether mm, that was a human mm, underdog or a mm. literal underdog. Yeah. Um, and I've always wanted to, I believe in equality and, um, and opportunities for everybody. Um, I might have fallen into a women's rights organisation or a human rights or a gay rights or anything like that, but actually I fell into animal rights and, mm. and that's the path I, I am still on. Right, right, right. right. Um, and in terms of the organisation itself, so you you come here when, in the 2000s at some point? Um, I worked for different animal organisations first and came to Animal Aid about 10 years ago. Oh, did you? Would you mind telling us a bit about those mm. experiences and then we'll come on? Focus sure. on animal aid. I worked, my first paid job was with Viva, which is a vegetarian vegan organisation. Viva. V-I-V-A, Viva. Mm-hmm. Um, they moved to Brighton where I was living uh, and uh, basically called me up because they knew I was active locally for animals and said, we need offices. So I said, okay, I'll see what I can do. Uh, but they found their own, which was great. And I didn't even think of applying. Um, I don't know why. Uh, and then right on the very last moment, I called up and said, oh, I'm thinking of applying, is it too late? And they said, well, we're interviewing right now. So, oh, well, can I come? And they said, yes. So anyway, I turned up and interviewed and that's where I began. So I started off um, as a youth campaigner, um, working with kids. 
and to try and empower them, but also teaching um, our volunteers how to go into schools and present classes on vegetarianism mm. and mm. animal farming and actually doing cookery demonstrations, which I love doing. Nice. It was wonderful. Yeah. Um, so I did that for about three years. And then I moved to PETA, which is a well-known American organization. Yeah, in fact, I did a podcast. I lived in LA till I mm. moved here and I did a podcast a couple of years ago with the people from PETA, just opposite the Bob Barker building. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So I was there for six years, um, running their charity, again, doing education work, producing materials for schools, um, and going to lots of education shows, and a lot of humane education. Obviously, it starts very young with kids. It started for me very young, and just trying to get kids just to think about animal issues. Um is, is what that was all about. And people for the ethical treatment of animals, is that a big deal here in the UK or no? Yeah, they're, they're comparable with Animal Aid, I think, in terms of size. Um, obviously, they have a lot more clout back in America. They're much bigger mm-hmm. uh, there. But yeah, they, they do good work here. They get vast amounts of money in the US from Bob Barker, who's a major league sort of 85-year-old vegan quiz show host right. who gave them this amazing building yeah, near yeah. where I used to live. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we don't have a multimillionaires just giving us buildings. I'm afraid. You can I was probably say, isn't there? Simon Cowell must be a vegan. I'm sure he's a vegan. I don't think he is. <laughs> but there's lots of people who are. I mean, it's it's one of those things that's really. Um, oh God, I, I hate that it's become so fashionable because I always wonder if something's fashionable, I must be doing something wrong. But actually, in this case, I'm hoping I'm doing something right. Um, but it is a logical thing for people to do. Uh, if they care about animals and the environment. Um, and it's wonderful to see such an uptake. I mean, I think a turning point for me was when David Hayes, the heavyweight boxer, said, I'm doing it, I'm going yeah. vegan. I think, yeah. well, if you can do it and you can see it, and, you know, he's a man's man, that's fantastic. He is. He's super macho guy, mm. actually, isn't he, yeah. in other ways? Um, he's, a Brit- I guess he's, he's a black British heavyweight boxing champion maybe not world champion maybe he was once or something yeah, but he's got it. a big mouth too. yeah he does yes. he's got a really big mouth he does i wouldn't upset him uh, certainly not <laughs> he's only about my height and build but of course he's got just a few more muscles perhaps uh, maybe I, I wouldn't be so rude but, as to, <laughs> <just> to compare <laughs> but it is interesting there are more and more sporting people who are doing it in the national mm. football league there are people coming out as vegans mm. in hollywood it's mm. Not oh, exactly de rigueur, but lots and lots of yeah. people are vegans and they give money to PETA big mm-hmm. time as well. Yeah. And there are very interesting people in PETA who are doing undercover work on, for example, Hollywood film and television productions. Mm-hmm. And, and it gets reasonable media coverage there. However, I found when I was teaching, the students knew I was a vegetarian and then I became a vegan. They didn't mind that. In me at all, mm. uh, it seemed. They were always very polite to me. But the one topic that would send them into angry rants was Peter and mm. vegetarian or veganism in general. Right. Incredible class hostility, I mm. think. Yeah, it was, oh, interesting. Uh, so how long have you been vegan? I've been vegan for two years, and okay. I was vegetarian for 20 years before mm. that. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I was one of these people who just needed a nudge to go the extra step yeah do you know what i mean i do absolutely and um people shouldn't underestimate the power of habit you know mm, i think mm. and also the power of sticking your head in the sand is a uh, is you know huge for people but certainly if you're just used to buying the same most of a shop without even thinking you just pick up well, the same stuff and i loved eggs and cheese 
And I thought that was okay. Yeah. And I realised, speaking of the force of habit, that within five minutes of not eating them, I didn't miss them. Mm. And I felt much better politically, Mm. morally, ethically, spiritually, whatever. I don't believe in that, but all the other illies. (laughs) Exactly what you mean. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, I I, do. I I really was. So, yeah, anyway, sadly, this isn't about me. Oh, can we do one on you? (laughs) (laughs) We'll do an anime podcast. (laughs) So. You're there working at PETA. What are some of the differences between PETA in Britain and Animal Aid? Um, I haven't been at PETA for 10 years, so I don't know quite how they work right now. And I only ever ran their charity, so I wasn't involved with the campaigns team. So Mm -hmm. um, we do work together on on lots of issues and our paths do cross. But I suspect the key difference, as I see it, is Animal Aid has very specific campaigns that mm. we have had long-term issues that we stick with and we don't change, mm. um, except we try inch forward and inch forward and inch forward. Um, we're very tenacious. And I think, Peter, where their strengths really lie are in sort of raising awareness through stunts and photo ops and sometimes rather outrageous things. TV commercials where people aren't wearing very many clothes. Always naked. <laughs> I'm surprised it wasn't a compulsory thing for the office. You can come in, but, you know, <laughs> Once you're in here, your pants you at the door. Off. <laughs> um, so we, we're a little, probably a bit more uh, sensible, I suppose, mm. than that. Um, we're, we're, we're very focused. I know Peter means business too. They're not, you know, they're not flippant and silly. But uh, I guess we take perhaps a more, a different approach. Yeah, yeah. No, sure, sure, sure. So you come here when? About ten years ago. About ten years ago. And what do you find when you walk through the door? I found a wonderful uh, group of people who are just passionate. Everybody who works here works here because they genuinely believe in it. Mm. I mean, mm. there are no careerists here. I mean, the money's not good enough to have a careerist to come here. And there's no career trajectory, presumably. No, we're a small organisation. So it's really just about the passion and the dynamism. And I have a brilliant team of campaigners here now um, who... You know they're working weekends. I know when I'm checking my emails at 11 at night and I send something out, I know I'm going to get a response straight away because they're doing it too. And it's because they believe so passionately in it. They really do, as I do, want to see change. And I've always felt that life goes so damn quick, you know. Mm. I can't believe quite the age I am now. And I really want to use every moment to make this world a little bit better. Mm. Um, Mm. And everyone, I think everyone here feels the same. And what's your job description, job title, job description here? I'm head of campaigns. Um, what that means is I obviously oversee all the campaigns team and try and encourage innovative and uh, and really exciting initiatives and set goals and achieve goals. Mm. It also means uh, I have my own campaigns to run because we are a small organisation, so mm. I don't get just mm. to sit and direct people about. No, that's too bad. You don't, have to, you don't just sit in the office with a keyboard being oh, a no. desktop radical. So you, you do that. You, you do that. <laughs> uh, no, um, my own campaigns are wildlife culling, which is a massive issue because um, well, because it's a huge... Maybe don't, nobody knows how many animals are killed while well, animals are killed but also every species is different and every circumstance is different um, but also I work on uh, slaughterhouse welfare um, and slaughterhouse uh, expose so we've now investigated 10 slaughterhouses fly on the wall cameras inside 10 and the fallout from that in the last five years has been massive so that's um, it's weird that a vegan spends her days watching animals getting killed but that's pretty mm. much what I do now, in terms of the, the culling, the badger issue is a big one here in mm-hmm. the UK. And I should explain that most of the listeners to this podcast are outside Britain. Cool. So it's helpful to give them a bit of context. We And I know the badger culling issue is an mm. important one for you guys. It is. Um, it's 
it's a weird one because it is the it's the high profile culling issue and almost every organization works on it um animal aid's a little different we work on all the other culling issues too badgers are like the national uh, animal really they're protected by law because historically they've been hunted virtually to extinction and they've been persecuted by gamekeepers so they were protected um by a specific law um but that doesn't stop governments then overturning that uh, in terms of promising it, it, the demand for badger culling has come from dairy farmers um, TB is a real problem in dairy cows, as is actually lameness and mastitis and many other conditions that you can really only blame the farmer for. But unsurprisingly, perhaps farmers prefer to look at TB and uh, say that badgers pass TB to cows, which is true in a small state. But I think in a larger scale, cows pass it the other way too, and other animals, deer and, and others also possibly can carry it. So. It seems a very political issue. Now, if you look at science, uh, we have found after a massive cull of uh, a test cull that uh, TB, oh, culling badgers can make no meaningful impact on TB in cows. That's what the conclusion was. So everybody thought it was done and dusted. No meaningful impact. It's fine. Change of government, change of priorities, change of perspectives. And uh, we're back once again culling badgers. Um, we know it can't make an impact. So this cull is actually about seeing if you can cull them humanely and effectively. So that trial cull concluded you can't cull them humanely and effectively by free shooting. So now we've got another cull going on to try and establish a way that you can cull them effectively and safely and humanely, even though we know that it's not going to have a meaningful impact on TB. So I think it's one of those rare campaigns where you win every battle, but you kind of lose the war. You know, they're still culling. Elections next week will make all the difference on this issue. We have very clear party lines on badger culling. Tories will cull, Labour Party won't. My memory is that, is his name May? Brian May. Brian May, mm -hmm. the guitarist from Queen, mm -hmm. a lifelong Tory voter, mm -hmm. has come out strongly in support of badgers and against the Tories. Yes. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we were with him last week up at Westminster doing the suffragette march for animals. Um, yeah, he has. He's completely changed his views. He runs a wildlife sanctuary from his home, actually. He's an amazing man. And he's got a PhD in astronomy also. Astrophysics. He? Astrophysics, yeah. yeah. No, he's so... Which he went back to after 40 years to finish. He's life. one of the most interesting people yeah. I've ever met because he? he's got so many strings to his bow and yeah. he's such a compassionate, humane, intelligent man that he really is extraordinary. Why was he ever a Tory and why was he in Queen? <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> Do we have time to answer them? I don't know. Um, but he's, he's been great, has he? He's been really amazing. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah, really amazing. Yeah. He's brought such an awareness. And actually Ricky Gervais, too, has brought such an awareness, not just to culling, but to animal issues right across the board. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really encouraging to see high-profile people sticking heads above parapets and, and yeah. saying what they think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe you could tell us a bit about the other animal culling issues that you're working with and, and then tell us a bit about the suffragette march would that be okay Ooh, fine yeah. well culling is such a i mean it's such a horrible word mm. you know, obviously it's slaughtering and there's all kinds of reasons for it and all kinds of species i think that there's probably no species that escapes uh culls often government funded um but not always sometimes people can just kill if they want to there are certain mm. animals and birds that are on what they call a general license and that just means you know essentially you can kill them if you want to um, we have arguments that animals aren't native, which is a crazy distinction to make when 
the world is shipping animals around left, right and centre and we have zoos and exotic species in people's homes. I mean, you can buy a meerkat for your front room, but heaven forbid if that one gets out because then it's a non-native and you will get shot. Um, so we work on all the uh, unpopular animals. We argue for rats and mice because, the po- well, apart from the fact they have rights in and of themselves, the methods for culling, that you can... And you can go to Sainsbury's or Tesco's and pick up rat poison, stick it wherever you feel like, and kill in the most horrendous way possible. These poisons take days to work, and the animals are conscious throughout, absolutely horrendous. And of course, you have secondary targets as well, animals who the poison is not intended for can be killed. Um, and sticking poisons into the environment just willy-nilly seems to me a crazy thing to do. So there's all kinds of arguments against it. So we'll speak up for pigeons where others don't. We tried and stopped to stop the colour of ruddy ducks in the UK, a non-native species who do no harm here, but it's argued that they fly to Spain, which some do, uh, and breed with the rare white-headed duck, and that confers a genetic impurity, and bird watchers hate genetic impurity. And they wanted to preserve this white-headed duck, um, no matter the fact that the white-headed duck was endangered because of hunters in Spain. That's another story. But that came the, uh, the, the, the cry from Europe that we must kill these, and the government obliged. And they've spent oh, who knows how many thousands of pounds of taxpayers' money hunting down these little ducks and killing them. And it's the same with monk parakeets. There's a, a colony of monk parakeets in, uh, in and around London no more than 90 birds, and they've spent thousands tracking these birds down and killing them. So, And they've never grown the numbers. they stayed stable. I was going to say, you've got to feel sorry for parakeets living in this climate anyway. <laughs> but you do, yeah. You should knit I mean, them little woolly jumpers. We should knit them little woolly jumpers. <laughs> That's a new campaign. And the, the, the little woolly knitted jumper campaign for parakeets. Do you know I think it'll take off? Keep well, a parakeet warm this winter. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, we've got thousands of ring-necked parakeets. And that they've kind of been left alone, uh, I suspect, because the government thinks there's too many of them and we can't really afford to kill them, even though the arguments... I mean, it's just pick and choose. Pick and choose your species. And grey squirrels, I mean, you know, everybody seems to hate them. I think we have a real problem with successful animals. The ones who do well and can adapt, like people, actually, and can live anywhere and make their homes and do pretty well. We seem to have a real problem with them. I wonder if I could divert us yet again, because this fascinates me, and ask you what you think it is that makes some animals appeal to the ordinary punter and others not, because that seems quite important. There's obviously an anthropomorphism that animates, and understandably so, animals that have faces recognisably like our own. Mm-hmm. Many people have written about that, and yeah. that's been studied, I think, fairly conclusively. But what is it? I didn't know people were anti-pigeon until you just told me. Yes, and it seems pigeons are rats with wings and squirrels are rats with good PR and rats are just rats. So rats are still blamed for the plague. I mean, my goodness, people have got grudges to bear. (laughs) (laughs) My family was wiped out in 1311. That little skunk I, the fact that it turns out that it wasn't probably even rats in the first place. I mean, yeah. but I don't know. I think people have a prejudice and they just t- gather information to support that prejudice. And I suspect that's beyond animal protection. Right. But in terms of, for example, how you orchestrate your campaigns, mm. presumably you have a symbolic politics that you run with, which mm. isn't just about all animals have should have the same rights as all humans. But it's also we can get people on board here if we have a sympathetic creature. In the same way that yes. WWF, World Wildlife Fund, 
has tried, in a sense, almost to appropriate the giant panda. Greenpeace has tried to appropriate the polar bear. Mm. You know, these are cute creatures yeah. that everybody is meant to love. We don't do that. We, we are completely egalitarian. I mean, we are just one of many species on this planet. Mm. Every species should have the chance to do the best that they can. Uh, their mm. habitat should be preserved. They should mm. be, at the very least, free from being persecuted. Um, and we shouldn't really be meddling. So we actually, which very much fits with my personal ethos, support the underdog. You know, mm. Nobody likes rats, but we do. They're beautiful, intelligent. Mm. In fact, if you show somebody a picture of a rat in a water bowl, they probably can't tell them apart, but mm. they love one and hate the other, which is just insane. Mm. Um, rats don't do any damage. They're amazing creatures. And what mm. we've learned to do recently... To, to, again, to try and uh, effect change because people are so anti-rat is to produce fact sheets on humane wildlife deterrence. So much as I love rats and I've looked after pet rats who've been abandoned, uh, rescued rats and so on, and they're, they're bright and beautiful and actually incredible animals. But I still would be less than happy to have one in my attic, uh, mostly because the noise at night keeps me awake. But, you know, chewing wires and all of that as well. So just to try and persuade people that you don't have to kill. If an animal comes into your garage or your home or your garden and you're not happy about it, there are things you can do just to move them on gently. Um, so that's one thing that we're quite keen on, on pushing. And that's the same for foxes and birds um, and, and rats and squirrels as well. So this is partly about how instead of culling, you can return them to a habitat that we haven't dominated. Yes, if such a habitat exists. exists. Well, since moving back here from the US a year or so ago, I routinely see foxes mm. walking around the streets. Mm. And it's quite clear that the areas where they can safely inhabit and get the food they need are shrinking. Mm. It's true. Um, and foxes, again, are very adaptable, which is why people don't like them. Don't you? you find them, I mean, they're in central London yeah. in the middle of the night. Yeah. In fact, you'll see them more often in the city than in the countryside because they, they have, they're used to living around people in the city. So they're less frightened. In the countryside, people are usually carrying guns and they keep one away or, or cars are a, pro a problem. Um, but yeah, in the cities, you'll see them all the time. Mm. Fascinating. My little football club is Leicester City, known as the Foxes. Oh, really? I was born in Leicester, so oh, okay. the Fox is our little symbol. So you're a Midlands Midlands man. Originally, yes, <laughs> a long, long time ago. So, okay, you're doing this culling stuff uh, as, as part of the campaign. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about some of the other campaigns that the organisation's running and then get onto the suffragette? Yes. Um, so uh, we work on horse racing issues too. Um, there's lots of work done on greyhounds. People kind of understand that greyhound racing is a little bit ropey in lots of ways, welfare, drugging, and all kinds of uh, all kinds of issues. Um, but that didn't always translate to horses, and I suspect it's a class issue. Uh, horse racing is a bit of an upper class sport. I use the word loosely because I don't think a sport Form involves animals upper, that haven't, or anybody who hasn't given consent. Ruling class torture. Thank you. That's a nice catch line of it. Mm. Um, so the fact that 400 animals at least are, are raced to death every year in this country, um, and that wasn't talked about. People don't talk about it. When you listen to horse racing commentary on the BBC or any news channel, they don't talk about the horse that's lying dead on, on the course. They'll talk about anything but that. And it's an acknowledgement that for people who bet and for people who go along, horse racing is horrendous for the horses. I remember listening to some uh, a man speak at a, a professor speak at a conference I went to, and he talks about how they uh, tested horses for their stress levels throughout the day. And their stress apparently peaks at four in the morning. Because at that point, they have no idea what's happening. Are they going to stay in their stable? 
Are they going out for a gallop? Are they going to get loaded into a horse box? Are they going to get flown to Dubai to, to race? They just don't know what's going to happen. Are they going to be injected with dangerous toxic substances? Mm. Or is somebody going to get on the back and beat the hell out of them? Mm. They just don't know. Um, That's fascinating. And if we did, again, if it's this, you know, translating it, if you did that to your pet dog, if you just ship them around the world and beat them to run. I mean, people would be outraged, but it happens to horses all the time. And this idea, because they're big, doesn't mean that they're, they can't feel the pain. You know, this idea that you can beat an elephant because he or she can't feel the pain is just nonsense. They still have nerve endings in their skin. They still feel pain. Um, so we try and expose that cruelty. The whipping, uh, the jump racing particularly is, is very dangerous, but flat racing has its fair share of casualties too and we just believe that if you can't give consent you shouldn't be doing it mm -hmm. i attended a protest at channel four against the grand national mm -hmm. which was run two weeks ago yes. i suppose and it was covered by channel four and this is for those outside the uk the premier jumping event mm -hmm. i suppose mm -hmm. in the horse racing calendar yeah. and horses I think die every year at some point during the day in terms of all the events mm. and frequently in this big mm. race itself. That's right yeah they've made some changes and every year they make tweaks to try and make it safer but it's a fundamentally dangerous course it's mm. a crowded field 40 horses compete it's a very dangerous course um, in terms of the height of the jumps the width of the jumps the terrain so for some jumps the uh, takeoff is higher than the landing which of course horses don't know so they go over expecting to land at a certain point and they sort of plummet further um, and because it's the premier uh, horse racing spectacle, um, it's a fierce competition. So they are driven to the line. Um, horses, yeah, you're right, they die routinely there. Um, and it's a focal point for us only in that it's this famous race, but it's the same across all the jump races. Cheltenham is particularly dangerous. Um, so we try, again, it's about exposing what people want to cover up. It's about making people confront what's really going on. And saying to people, you know, if you're betting, you're propping up this industry. So please don't put that fiver on that horse. Give it to your local horse sanctuary. You'll be doing a lot more good. Now, a lot of people who are farmers, a lot of people, I suspect, who are horse trainers, jockeys, owners, and others involved in these industries, see themselves as pro-animal, mm. see themselves as conservationists, mm. and regard activists who are not on a daily basis involved in the welfare in inverted commas of these fellow animals as outsiders, dilettantes, irresponsible radicals. Mm -hmm. Maybe they do, and I'm proud to be one of those people. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Little sign saying, irresponsible radicals will take on non-wire-chewing rat. <laughs> yeah, this job doesn't win you a lot of friends, I have to say. We, we don't shy away from... Uh, the big corporations and, and the uh, the wealthy and the, and the mm. people who hold the reins of power. Um, but I don't think, I mean, I don't know if anybody in the horse racing world would say they were a conservationist. We get that a lot in the shooting world, and that is just the most terrible deceit I've ever heard. That's one of our campaigns, again, is sport shooting, sport, in inverted commas, one more time. Um, the idea that conservation can be about the mass release of 50 million intensively reared birds non-native actually into the wild and at the same time massacring goodness knows how many native animals to protect those birds how that can be conservation just mm. beggars belief mm. 
And I can't think of anything more disgusting than factory farming a bird just so you can beat it up into the air and shoot it down again for fun. I mean, that seems to me the most backward thing we could possibly be doing in a civilised mm. country. Mm. I don't see it as any different to canned hunting, actually, because these birds are enfeebled. They're, they're bred so they can... I mean, pheasants can barely fly. I mean, that's not sporting. They're kept in one place. They're kept in by the gamekeeper. They're fed in one place. They can't really get away. And if they manage to survive up until the point they're old enough to be you know, hurled up into the sky, then they get shot at. And so, Kate, okay, what this says to me is that you're prepared to adopt an agonistic stance towards these people involved in the industry and say, we're not going to convert them. They're not reasonable. They don't respect the rights of our fellow animals. And so what we have to do is, in the case of something like hunting, get at the lawmakers mm. in order for there to be mm. change. Is that right? That is right. I mean, we, we don't make it personal. If people go out and shoot, you know, it's kind of, we don't tackle them directly. They've made their decision. We, we, you know, we try and encourage people not to. Um, but people who've gone, particularly on things like hunting and horse racing, if they're already involved with that industry, they're not really likely to, to step away from it. Mm. But there are plenty of people that we can prevent from getting into that industry, uh, getting into that sport. Um, and, of course, the lawmakers are important. So one of the things we looked at with sport shooting was the production of game birds, which people think they're natural. They live out in the wild, they raise their families, and a few get shot down for the pot. It's this old-fashioned, idyllic world, that, like old farmyards with a pig and a chicken wandering around. It's just Re not true. Rebecca Brooks and... David Cameron. Yes, yes. <laughs> Coming out from their afternoon tea mm. to go and do a bit of hunting. Yes, very nice, very <laughs> nice. Mm. It's a whole different world, isn't it? Um, but that's not how it happens. These birds are, are in massive rows and rows and rows of cages uh, in all elements, uh, and we've exposed these cages. So what we've looked at is trying to get those banned. Um, under the last Labour government, there was a code of practice brought in that effectively outlawed battery cages for pheasants and partridges. Unfortunately, the Labour government left it right to the end of their tenure. And the very first thing the new government did when it came to power was overturn that code of practice. One of the very first things. So it allowed birds to stay in those cages. It gave them a bit of dowling to sit on, which was nice. But otherwise, those cages remain and uh, they can still produce. So for us, it's not really, you know, the bigger picture is that it's not about the cages, it's about shooting full stop but getting rid of those cages would have made a lot of shooting unviable because the cost of rearing them free range would have made it so much more difficult that it would have reduced shooting mm. um so it's lots of ways to get at uh, at the industry and, and try and protect as many birds as you can and the wild animals who are killed along the way we also like to um keep an eye on their tax <laughs> because they claim some of them that they are producing for food so they have some tax exemptions for food production but it's not for food and it costs i think 13 times as much to rear and release and shoot down a bird as it does that you can get retail so it's a really a terrible way of food production if it is food production and it's now been ruled that it's a leisure not a production of food so they are liable to tax so we've managed to uh, i think we've, we managed to get 20 million pounds of tax money out of shoots and back to the revenues. So um, that's good. What have you found to be the most effective ways of lobbying politicians? Um, I think if you can be face to face with them, that's the most important way. Uh, they get a thousand emails, a thousand phone calls um, and letters as well, get answered by somebody in their office. 
Um, also, I think, particularly when you're tackling these difficult issues, they might categorise you as, what did you call me earlier? Irresponsible? <laughs> Radical? And if it's a particularly unusual issue or something they're not familiar with, they might just think, oh, that's a bit strange and, and park it over at one side. If you can get in front of them and show that you've got done your research, you've got your facts, you're a very hopefully personable and an intelligent person who can put forward a good argument, not just explain the whys, but the how laws can be changed and, and, and through the mechanisms, um, then I think you have a much better chance at affecting change. Mm. And do you dress in drag for those sorts of things, all of you? I mean, do you dress up in the right clothes for Westminster? What are you saying? <laughs> No, what you're wearing now is absolutely fine. <laughs> but what I mean is... I'm not is... sitting here in a pheasant costume. <laughs> we fly in and then enter through the chimney. Who knows? Yes, I mean, obviously, when I'm going to speak to politicians, I make sure I'm smart. Uh, when I'm in the office, I might be uh, not in such a posh frock. But um... No, but you've got very nice vegan boots and tights and a very nice grey sweater on. Sorry, I didn't mean to imply... <laughs> Anything different. Slightly covered in dog fur, but yeah, I think the dog fur off. Presumably all of you take the dog fur off. That's that's exactly it. No, I just wonder whether it seems important to perform a certain presence. I mean, I'm uh, this afternoon going to a meeting in a posh London hotel, so I'm dressed not super formally, but a little more formally Mm. than I might normally be. I think it's... So we all, I think, do this. I didn't mean it as a criticism. No, I think it's a natural thing, isn't it? So if you're going in front of a camera or in front of an MP, you might... Or are you going for lunch with your mum and dad? You might dress differently. It's one of those... We all act slightly differently around different people. Mum says you're wearing those vegan boots, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to grow out of it. (laughs) Um, So speaking of mum, let's talk about the suffragette issue. Yeah, that's something that... um, well, we work with lots of different people, and Lush Cosmetics is a brilliant advocate of animal protection. They're a fantastic um, company, aren't they? Wonderful company. Yeah. We've got, uh, and they make great product, apart from anything else. Yeah. And their sales team is populated by unbelievably nice people. Wonderful. Who actually like you as a customer and mm. talk to you mm. as if your opinion mattered and don't care if you don't buy anything. Yes, no, they are, they're wonderful. We love working with them, and we have done on lots of different issues. Have you? Okay. Um, so... Yes, more, and in fact, their staff, in, as you say, in the shops are brilliant, and each individual, individual shop can choose to support a campaign if they want to. So when the Cheltenham Racing is on, the Cheltenham shop has our leaflets in there and puts RIP gravestone signs in the window um, and supports individual campaigns. So they, they, are, they are wonderful. So they coordinated an event recently with us and the League Against Cool Sports. And, Which has been around forever. Mm, long, long time, yeah. And also Brian May's, uh, it was called Save Me, and I think now they've started up a common decency issue uh, website. So between us, we um, coordinated this march in London where everyone was dressed in Edwardians of suffragette outfits with sashes that says votes for animals instead of votes for women and little rosettes and these beautiful, peculiar animal masks. So it made quite a sight to be sort of in this Edwardian Victorian outfit with a, an animal mask. Um, and we uh, were at the Lush store in Oxford Street, which hadn't even opened, actually. It opened the next day. So we had that as the, the press point. Oxford Street, uh, I guess the most famous sales street in, in London, London, maybe yeah. in Europe, actually, for that mm, matter. Mm. 
constantly populated with thousands of tourists. Absolutely, no, it was huge, and the shop they're opening there is absolutely huge. So we had a, uh, they had some press launch for the shop itself and for the products. They had beauty vloggers and bloggers there. Plus the political side came along too. Brian May was there, Peter Egan, the actor, and also a man called Mark Abraham, who's um, a sort of celebrity vet who's on our television quite a lot. Um, and we gave speeches there, and then we marched on Parliament, and we did more speeches at Parliament. Literally got onto a soapbox, which was lovely. Um, always a pleasure to share a soapbox with Brian May. And, He's a little um, bit taller than you, I think. Bit, yeah, while I was on the soapbox, I think we were around the same kind of, <laughs> same kind of height. Suffragette soapbox, blokes. But his hair is probably taller than either of us, I that's would it, think. That's yeah. it. No, he's an extraordinary man and very passionate. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we all joined forces for that. And because obviously it's just a countdown to the election now. And it's such a tight race. Mm. Um, nobody believes there's going to be an outright majority. And we just want to get good MPs in. Our view is... The Tory party is terrible for animals. The last five years have been atrocious. There's been nothing progressive. It's all about fighting fires, trying not to undo all the mm, good work that's mm. been done in the past. So we need to get the Tories out. Um, but that said, there are really good Tory MPs who have just been brilliant on animal issues. So Has that Goldsmith been good? He's good on badger cull, bad on hunting. So he's... He's a sort of weird, squillionaire, ruling class scion who... Gives lots of money to environmental causes. Yeah, yeah right? he, that's right. He is, um, but it, because he's from the elite classes, yeah. he's very much a conservative in lots of respects. Uh -huh. um, we don't deal with him particularly directly. I think he doesn't because we don't work on um, on the issues that he does support the environmental side. But somebody like Henry Smith, for example, who's a conservative MP, he's been vegetarian for 25 years. I've never heard of him, I must admit. He's only been in for a short period for the last yeah. five years. So he mm. represents Crawley, which is not a typically conservative area. No. Um, but he's very supportive on all of the issues that we put to him on CCTV and slaughterhouses, on the whip in horse racing, on caging birds. Um, and he's been extraordinary. So... While we vote one Henry, vote for Henry, but get the others out. It's a, yeah. So we, we, what we've been doing is picking the marginal seats and saying, okay, we've got a real chance to get this one out and get somebody better in. So we've been pushing very hard just to try and tip that balance for mm. animal. That's wonderful, wonderful. It's, this is a very inspirational story. Well, Kate, I want to thank you very much for giving up so much of your time today. The work you do is extraordinarily important, and I'll send you the link if you like to the Peter guy. Mm from a couple of years ago yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. on the same series. And I hope that you'll come back into the pod and we can do some more talking again together. Let's talk after the election, but I might need a, a stiff drink. Absolutely. <laughs> You've deserved it. You've earned it. Ta-da. Thanks. <laughs>